This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, September the 27th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Fired up on a Tuesday morning. That's nothing to do with a 4 a.m. workout and two shots of espresso. Coming up on the show today, Lawrence Gunther will reflect on Dicarp's reports on the impact of climate change on people with disabilities. We talked with the authors behind the report last week, so we'll get Lawrence's reflection this week. Elizabeth Moeller has the inside info on the news quiz. Andy Frank, Karen McGee of the day. The cleanup continues in Atlantic Canada relief efforts. We will continue to be there as a federal government with immediate supports, uh, with the military where it's needed, uh, with investments uh, in the short term, uh, but we will also be there over the medium and indeed long term. Defence Minister Anita Anand described how the Navy will assist coastal communities in Newfoundland. HMCS Margaret Brook is sailing from St. John's this morning to conduct wellness checks in four communities on the south coast tomorrow as requested by the province. In Porto Basque, Newfoundland, at least 80 homes were destroyed or damaged. Premier Andrew, Andrew Furry knows there will be many phases to rebuilding. The big message that we want people to hear is that we will be there for every phase, not just the acute response phase, which we're in today. But I am satisfied that the response of the federal government has been quick and efficient, and I have no doubt, should it need to be escalated, uh, given my discussions with the Prime Minister, it will be. Provincial Representative Andrew Parsons says supporting people is the number one priority. We are going to be there for every single person that's lost a house, that's lost a vehicle, that's lost their, their belongings, you name it, we'll be there. And there's different stages. Right now, we are dealing with the immediate of making sure people have roofs over their head, food, clothes, things like that. But going forward, we have a lot of people that are displaced that we're going to have to deal with, and that's probably the biggest issue along this coast right now, and that's going to take some time. Crews on Prince Edward Island continue to restore power to residents. Premier Dennis, K- Dennis King laid out the scale of the operation. Maritime Electric crews are out working to restore power. We've had almost uh, 6,000 customers back online since yesterday, uh, and they're working day and night to restore as many uh, customers uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, We have over 100 military personnel on the ground working with our transportation and infrastructure crews uh, in conjunction with Maritime Electric. The economic impact of Fiona is going to be significant across Atlantic Canada in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Cruise ships will not be able to dock. Port CEO Marlene Usher says that's a big blow to the local economy. And we've had two years with no uh, cruise. So we were already in a very serious situation with respect to revenues and uh, our reserves. We try to do our best to generate other revenue from other activities, but it puts us in a very precarious situation. Other economic impacts include destroyed farms in PEI and destroyed fishing wharfs all across the region. If we go further south, another hurricane 
is causing significant destruction. Hurricane Ian has made landfall in western Cuba. Ian hit Cuba earlier today as a Category 3 storm and continues to strengthen with sustained winds of 201 kilometers per hour. U.S. National Hurricane Center Acting Director Jamie Rohn says there's a concern about the height of the storm surge. Uh, so specifically two to four in the Keys, three to five over southwest portions of Florida, four to seven for Charlotte Harbor, five to eight in and around Inglewood, and then topping out indicating peak surge potential of 10 feet in Tampa Bay. And remember, I'm six feet tall. That's four feet over my head. The potential exists. Storm models predict Tampa and St. Petersburg could be the first direct hit by a major hurricane in a century when Ian hits Florida later tomorrow. Over to Pakistan, where government officials in that country continue to sound the alarm about the significant floods impacting the country. The flooding has killed more than 1,600 people this year. Foreign Affairs Minister Bilawal Bhutto Zandari described what the last few months have been like. We have experienced a climate catastrophe of biblical apocalyptic proportions. It rained and rained and rained and rained and rained from mid-June till the end of August. Sadari reflected on the disproportionate impact of climate change that Pakistan is experiencing. Pakistan has contributed 0.8% to the global carbon output. But we are amongst the 10th most climate stress countries on the planet. As you move a little bit further into Southeast Asia, Vietnam has imposed a curfew and evacuated over 800,000 people from their homes as a typhoon aims for the country's central region today. Typhoon Noru already flooded villages and left at least eight people dead in the Philippines. Flights at five regional airports in Vietnam were cancelled on Tuesday and train service halted until the typhoon passes. And in case uh, what's going on on Earth is not enough for you, let's look out to the cosmos into space. An update on a story that we shared with you yesterday. A NASA spacecraft, spacecraft successfully rammed an asteroid last night in a test to see if space rocks can have their paths altered. The DART spacecraft plowed into a small space rock called Dimorphos at more than 22,500 kilometers per hour. Here is the sound of mission control as the spacecraft made impact. And we have impact a job for humanity in the name of planetary defense. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says this mission proves that planetary defense is possible. We are showing that planetary defense is a global endeavor and it is very possible to save our planet. Nancy Shabbat is the DART coordination lead at Mission Control at the John Hopkins University Applied Research Laboratory. She explains that nudging the asteroid is only the beginning of this research. Telescopes here and in space are looking. They're looking at the brightening of the rock that's thrown off from that spectacular collision that we saw. And this is going to go on for weeks. And so there's still a lot of excitement to come, but uh, nothing to take away from this moment. Planetary defense experts prefer nudging a threatening asteroid or comet out of the way rather than blowing it up as creating multiple pieces could rain down on Earth. So there you go. Why do you spend $325 million on a ship to crash into an asteroid? Not to blow up the asteroid, just to give it a little nudge. If I was being a little bit conspiratorial, I would say, yes, this test is important. No doubt about that. Here's my concern. 
what if we nudge it into an orbit that starts moving towards Earth? This asteroid posed us no danger. What if we've angered the asteroid? What if the asteroid is sentient? Then what are we going to get? Sometimes the hubris of man can go a long way. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Monday, we asked you what kind of natural disaster do you find most concerning? 24% of you said hurricane, 14% of you said tornado, 38% of you said earthquake, and 24% of you said wildfire. We had Maria write in, earthquake is a blind person. Earthquake would be the most scary for me. Jennifer writes in, earthquake. I live in the lower mainland in British Columbia and hope the big one never happens in my lifetime as a disabled wheelchair user. I dread the odds of my safety and survival at accessible media is where you find us on twitter at accessible media inc is where you find us on facebook today's daily poll looking to be a little bit more pragmatic than fear-mongering how do you plan on helping victims of hurricane fiona in atlantic canada money clothes supplies or other i saw the uh, local lions chapter put out a list of things that they could use yesterday including clothes things like tylenol aspirin baby food diapers other kinds of uh, medical supplies, toothbrushes, toothpaste, deodorants, all of these things that uh, perhaps you might might consider a little bit redundant if you walked into your local pharmacy, but these are things that may not be available to folks in some of those uh, coastal areas right now across the Atlantic. So it really got me thinking about supplies. I know the Red Cross is on the ground there, and certainly the Lions do a lot of awesome work, both in local chapters and connecting across the country. So to me... I would say supplies go a long way, but never forget that whether you're talking about a food bank or a relief effort, money can certainly go a long way as a matter of scale because typically these organizations can leverage that money and buy further in bulk than necessarily you might be able to walking into your local pharmacy or grocery store to buy some of these things. So money always goes a long way, but if you do have some supplies you can donate, I would say a look into your local chapter of the Red Cross or the Lions and see what they're doing in relation to these efforts on the East Coast. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for his thoughts on this. Alex, how would you plan on uh, lending a hand to folks out there in Atlantic Canada? Yeah, so I kind of agree with you, Dave, where it's, you know, money is kind of king in in the situation of, of these, but supplies is really what the people need. And I was thinking about this question. It's like, well, you know, supplies and clothing and all those things are vital. That's what they're they're asking for. But it's it's the... The logistics of getting that uh, getting that supplies to the the ground where they need it. Whereas money, you can go online, you can donate, you can find the Red Cross, the Lions, the, the, all these different organizations who are working to help people on the ground right there. The money can go directly there. You don't have to worry about the transportation costs, and then they have access to it. They can buy in bulk, as you say. They can it. it uh, in my mind, it has a quicker turnaround of the impact of what they can use it for right away instead of having to wait for you know, the clothing supplies that I end up donating to get to where they need to go. So I I always look at this, money's the easiest thing. They can use it for whatever. The, the needs are always going to be changing depending on uh, what the circumstances are, what they're they're getting in and what they have access to. So 
um, yeah, for me, I'm, I'm going to be looking to donate some money. Right. Once 40 or 50 cases of Tylenol show up, how much more Tylenol does somebody need? Do they need another case of Tylenol? I do understand the way someone might push back against some of these organizations. Again, I'm not in this in this case, I won't mention them by name, but certainly a lot of them have uh, very high paid managers and CEOs. So I would understand why someone might be leery of giving them cash and thinking, what is the direct impact of my cash if I give it to this particular organization? And is that just going to go into the pocket of a CEO rather than frontline help? Whereas the CEO can't do anything with that Tylenol, can't do anything with those diapers, can't do anything with that canned food that I donate. So I do understand why someone might be leery of just straight up giving cash in this scenario because of the way a lot of charities and nonprofits are actually structured in this country. So I, I would understand if someone was going to push back on that idea. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very good point, you know, because we we have seen over the years, as you mentioned, it's like CEOs, managers, like all these organizations, you, you started to do more research into how much of the donations that I give to these different nonprofits, these organizations, these charities, how much is actually going to the people in need that I, I am trying to help. And uh, I, over the years, I remember doing research and finding it's like, oh, well, certain percentages are not as high as I, I would have figured. And so it actually directed my uh, donations into different different uh, ways. I, I wouldn't support one organization because I, mm -hmm. I knew that the percentage of how much that money actually goes to those in need is quite low when you compare it to other organizations right. and other charities. So it, it made me a bit more of a conscious donator, if, if that made sense, like having to do a bit more research to find out, okay, how can my donation, my money, have the greatest impact for those I'm trying to help? And here's where I offer folks a resource for that. The majority of major charities across Canada are under scrutiny by an organization called Charity Intelligence Canada. They do a lot of the work for you in looking at those balance sheets and looking at the impact of your dollar. Charity Intelligence Canada is definitely a website worth checking out for this kind of information. Let's go over to Eliza Rocco. Eliza, how do you think you might try to lend a hand to those folks that dealing with the aftermath of the hurricane in, in Atlantic Canada? I have already donated a, a, a little bit of money towards some personal friends GoFundMes. I have a, quite a few friends out there who have been directly impacted. Um, and while I do, I do still plan on donating to Red Cross and uh, bigger charities that help more of the general population, I've started with just giving funds directly to mm. the people through GoFundMes. Um, in talking to my friends, while they, they agree the money is great and so, so helpful, the number one thing they need right now are supplies um, and other things, clothing, stuff like that. Yeah, like we talked about yesterday, uh, people were encouraged to have 72 hours of supplies, and since Friday we've certainly passed that 72-hour mark, and there are certain places where getting some of those supplies is going to be quite difficult. And then, if we're being quite frank, I mean, not to be not to put too fine a point on this, when you're talking about 80 homes destroyed in a place like Porto Basque and homes swept away into the ocean and in PEI, just farms destroyed. This cleanup effort and the needs that people are going to have are going to evolve significantly over the course of the next couple of weeks, months, and even over the course of the year. Eliza, thank you for this. We appreciate your insight. Thank you. That is Eliza Rocco. You can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. If you leave a message and let them know it's for me, 
it'll trickle into us a little bit faster. So please do that if you can. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. He has the national weather update. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, showers off and on today with four millimeters expected. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour in a high of 20. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's cloudy with periods of rain and 10 millimeters is expected. The high is 17. In Montreal, Quebec, showers with a risk of thunderstorms this afternoon and 17 is the high. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's cloudy with rain expected and possible thunderstorms this afternoon as well. And 17 is also the high there as well. In Toronto, Ontario, it's the same thing. It's cloudy with rain expected and possible thunderstorms this afternoon, but a high of 15. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with a high of 10. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, there's sunshine and 14 is the high. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Sunshine there as well, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers an hour and a high of 25. In Calgary, Alberta, it's more sunshine and 28 is the high. Whew. It's, a, it's, it's a good sunny day out in the west, you know, it's a beautiful weather out there, Dave. And continuing on, Edmonton, Alberta, same thing. It's a mix of sun and cloud, but it will clear up near noon with a high of 27. It's a heat wave it, in the prairies. Exactly, and it extends up to Yellowknife Northwest Territories as well, mainly sunny and a high of 20, which is a very good yeah. day in the fall <laughs> that, that does, in Yellowknife. In late September, that does constitute a heat wave in Yellowknife. Yeah. And continuing on to the West Coast, it's Vancouver, BC, it's sunshine and a high of 21. And in Victoria, BC, it's mainly sunny, but the high is 20. That was your AMI National Weather Report. From Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Lawrence Gunther will reflect on the DICARP report on the impact of climate change on people with disabilities. We interviewed the authors and researchers behind that report. And now Lawrence will offer up his reflection. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We've been talking a lot about climate change in the news on this show in the last couple of days. We've been talking about climate a lot on this show in the last couple of weeks. Last week, we spoke to one of the researchers behind a report by McGill University's Disability Inclusive Climate Action Research Program. The report pointed out how people with disabilities have largely been left out of climate change policy. So let's bring in Lawrence Gunther for his thoughts on this. Lawrence is, of course, of course, the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. How are you? I'm doing well, Dave. So, Lawrence, let's start with a general question. What was your immediate takeaway, your immediate take on this report? Well, 
I was disappointed, you know, in the findings, but not surprised, right? I mean, people with disabilities are seem to be the last to be considered on, on big topics like this these days. And when you're talking about, you know, power outages, uh, floods, emergency evacuations, food shortages, homelessness, you know, destruction of uh, shelters and, and housing, it, these are huge issues for people with disabilities because the options just aren't that great in terms of economic power and uh, accessibility. So when you lose that little bit, what you got for many of us, it's, it's a huge setback. It's vulnerable people who will typically be most impacted in time of a crisis. In fact, the people that we've seen suffering so greatly with fatalities as a result of Hurricane Fiona were elderly people who were swept into the ocean, right? I mean, that, if that doesn't put things into perspective for people, I don't think anything can. I agree, but I think what this report sort of says is is it definitely highlights that. But take it to the next level, you know, about the consultation process, right? You know, how do we get people with disabilities represented in these policies? We talk to them. It's not about us or for us. It's involve us. And that's, I think, where the real issue comes down is we're just not being consulted in real meaningful ways. So along those lines, of some of the findings in this report, what stood out to you in regards to some of the biggest failures? Well, I think about that, um, that you know, the example of the Montreal heat wave in 2018 and that one quarter of the people that died during that heat wave were people who uh, experienced uh, schizophrenia. And they said, you know, it's due to uh, the medication people with schizophrenia takes makes them more vulnerable to heat. Well, there's a lot more going on than just that, right? I mean, there's a lot of homeless people who have schizophrenia. And they have, they're homeless, so they're outside under the... Uh, under the sun, experiencing the heat every day, all day long, and in the night as well, with very little sort of you know relief. So you know they're they're forgotten. They're they're again, like drug addicts and homeless people. We don't consider them, and we don't sort of involve them. We don't sort of create policies that include them around healthcare or emergency response when it comes to uh, you know crisis related to climate change. We're just not thinking about them, or we just don't care enough about them. And, and that, to me, needed to be underscored a little bit more. Yeah, and I'll, I'll flip to the other coast. There was also some findings about the heat dome in British Columbia, the way in which that impacted people who were more vulnerable. And in this case, it was people who were actually in their homes who were being affected by this. The majority of the people who passed away as a result of the heat dome were people who actually had shelter in British Columbia. But again, they were people who were more vulnerable to the heat because of their age. And I don't mean to automatically imply that aging comes with disability but let's be clear it does mm. oh like, for sure i mean 60 percent you know if you're over 65 you're you know you're right away you're 40 percent person with a disability if you're over 75 it goes up to 60 percent back and knee issues and you know income right how much money do you have so what kind of quality of apartment you're going to have you're mm -hmm. going to have one with air conditioning or one with one tiny little window and the attic of some old house that has no cross ventilation and poor insulation and you're just it's like being in an oven yeah exactly it speaks it speaks to a, a general sort of structural lack of resilience that we've built in to the way in which we have people living as these conditions are changing lawrence in your observations are there some other groups impacted by extreme weather and climate change for sure dave like i think about this conference i just attended uh, last week and um, a two-day conference, and it was about farm animals 
and uh, we had a lot of presentations about what happens to farm animals during extreme events like floods and fire and storms that rip the roof off barns and destroy barns. You know, we hear about this in the news and we think, oh my goodness, you know, thousands and thousands of animals, uh, birds and chickens and geese and cattle and horses, you know, these are impacted. And, and But think about this too, the people that are responsible for those animals, the farmers, the owners of those farms, the people who work on those farms, when you see everything you work with, you know, they, you're caring for these animals, you're, you're responsible for these animals, and then all of a sudden it's all just eliminated, just wiped out. The depression that results from that is pretty profound. And they've done a lot of surveys now of farmers and they say that this type of event, these type of emergency events where their farm animals are impacted significantly, quite often it leads to depression. And unfortunately, it also leads to suicide. Yeah. These are the people that are, you know, responsible for our food, for growing our food, for taking care of, our, you know, our farm animals. And and uh, we're not we're not taking them into consideration as as much as we should either. We, you know, Agriculture Canada has a few programs, they're funding a few programs, but there's a lot more, a lot more conversations that need to happen about mental illness amongst farm workers and the stress and, and anxiety they're experiencing around this stuff. Yeah, that was something we didn't necessarily see in the Dicarp report because it happened so recently, but that was certainly an issue that happened in the flooding in the lower mainland in British Columbia last fall, wow. last, last autumn, where a yeah. lot of farmers were wiped out. And of course, there's a trauma there. But as you say, you use the word anxiousness, anxiety. I think there's just generally a climate anxiety that exists for people, regardless of disability. But is there something we can do sort of beyond a consultation for people with disabilities that, that, that would help with potentially some of these anxieties and mental welfares and preparations? Well, I think, you know, about environmental groups that are being consulted around these sorts of questions, right, around emergencies and, and all the stakeholders that are consulted. In my own experience uh, as the president of uh, an organization that's, you know, an environmental group, Bluefish Canada, I, I go to work, uh, go to the meetings of environmental groups and I meet with all my colleagues. And Dave, I don't see a lot of people with disabilities in these organizations themselves, right? And I think that's that's an issue in itself. Like it, when you have environmental groups and other groups talking to government, policymakers, decision makers, regulators about what do we need to do to prepare and mitigate climate change and, and build in resilience and respond and prepare and all of all the things we need to do around emergencies. And you have no one uh, in those groups with people with disabilities represented in those groups. That's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. And and. And I'm not going to get into why that's the way it is. I mean, there's a bit of a history there for sure. And uh, I've, I've written about it a little bit and I've explored it and I've experienced it all my life as someone who's, you know, started in the environmental movement back in the early, late 1980s. And, um, but I think there's, there's some interesting movement on this though. There's a group of diverse environmental activists in the United States, three people, very diverse backgrounds, who also recognize this and have started a thing called the Outdoorist Oath. And it's about taking a pledge to make sure that when we consider things related to the environment and climate change, that we, we bring in alternative and varied perspectives and that we don't deny and we don't exclude these perspectives and taking that pledge to make sure that the people and the organizations we work with have that diversity 
and have that sort of representation that's sorely missing right now. Mm, I'm a hundred percent on board with that, Lawrence. What are some of the other things we can do to address the shortfall, address this gap? What do you imagine we can do to create a circumstance where there is more inclusion and diversity baked into these movements? Money talks, Dave. Oh, Money talks. <laughs> and, and if you, when you're if you're, you're responsible for handing out government grants to these organizations, or you're a fa- you're organizing, you know, running a foundation where you know a lot of people with money with wealth they don't give their money directly to a, 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 an organization. They put it in a foundation and they hire someone to run that foundation to make sure the money is going to where it should go and that it's being properly utilized. These people should all make a conditional that. You know, the organizations that are getting this money have a representation that's, not, you know, that reflects society, not just, um, uh, you know, expertise in a topic, not just, you know, a, a, a good, meaningful um, a desire to make a difference, but actually make a difference that includes everybody and not just uh, a specific subset of the population, which is what we have now. Money talks. Yeah, this this isn't a fringe movement anymore. This is a major, major issue that, that has cross-popular appeal. And you're right, should absolutely contain a sample size of individuals that represent society as a collective. Lawrence, just before I ask you what's coming up on the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, I know I'm kind of putting this on you uh, a bit of a surprise and it's early still but one of the stories that is starting to emerge out of the Atlantic Canada right now is the number of fisheries and wharfs that are going to be damp that were damaged by the hurricane and storm that passed through I wonder if maybe you can offer a little bit of perspective on just what's what is the impact of something like that for people and their livelihoods both recreational fishermen but also professional fishermen and fisheries with that kind of damage when a storm like that pushes through you know, it's funny, Dave, I just got an email from a friend of mine. He He's a professor at Dalhousie University. He does a lot of fisheries research on rays and sharks. Uh, I've had him on Bluefish Radio a number of times. We're good friends. And he sent out a long email about, you know, his own preparations for, for the uh, hurricane that just passed through. He, he's in Halifax. And, uh, and, and just the damage that occurs. And... You know, we, we focus a lot on the surface, right, on what's happening on land, you know, how the waves and the tides and, and the wind and the rain impact the buildings, the structure, all of that, the roads, the electricity, all of that. But then you look at the shoreline and, and how is the shoreline holding up to all this? We think we can harden the shoreline. He said, he's points out in his e- email, like the last time they had a hurricane, they lost 80 feet of concrete sort of retaining wall, a, that a, a sort of a dike that was meant to protect the harbor where all the fishing boats are, all their docks, all their fish shacks are all inside this harbor. And the government built a large cement sort of wave break out there to, you know, to prevent large waves from coming in and destroying all this. Well, the last hurricane, 80 feet of that concrete uh, barrier was just disappeared. These are how powerful these storms are, wow. Dave. We think we can put rocks and, and cement and stop it and prevent it and, and make ourselves secure. It, these these solutions last on average 25 to 50 years, and then they're just rubble. They're wow. just rubble. Wow. So there's a lot of research on softening shorelines, you know, putting the trees back, putting the native plants back, putting these buffer strips along the shores. You know, when you have a big, large wave rolling and you can't stop it, but you can slow it down. And if you put enough sort of hardy trees and plants that are well rooted and 
you know, built for this type of uh, harassment by by nature, they can slow these waves down. They can slow down the the tides. They can slow down the viciousness of these of these uh, the seas incursions, and and make it a softer landing for the uh, for the land behind it. But then what about the fish, right? I'm I'm thinking about the fish. So I've asked them. I said, think Chris, think about this. Like, what happens to the fish and what happens to their habitat? Let's talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, to paraphrase Jurassic Park, nature finds a way. Lawrence, what's coming up on the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? Well, we, Lily and I went to visit the international plowing match. Now, who doesn't want to go to the plowing match, right? <laughs> Was, is that the Highland Games? No, no, it's the actual international plowing match. You know, all week I've been saying to my friends, hey, go to the plowing match. And they go, what's that, Lawrence? <laughs> Come on. It's once a year in Ontario. They pick a community to host it. It's all things farming, right? They have actual plowing competitions. And uh, so we went. I, I, I made my children go. I bribed them and, and threatened them. And, and <laughs> you used the carrot and the stick. Oh, all of it. They took everything, everything I had, you know, and they said, dad, you like this. And then we're, we're, we're getting ready to leave. And I said, hang on, I haven't even touched a tractor. <laughs> Turn around, go back in. <laughs> it's the uh, simple pleasures in life. Yeah. So we, we do a recap on the plow and match and Lily has some, uh, some uh, tips on uh, recycling best practices. And then I reflect a little bit on you know, how to stay safe when you're around farm animals or someone who's blind, uh, maybe with a guide dog. And, um, and what's the future of farming? Wow, that's a jam-packed episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Holy smokes, getting it all in there. Lawrence, oh, thank, yeah. you, thank you for making time for us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Dave. Have a great one. That's Lawrence Gunther. He's the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, which you can find Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, and you can follow Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther. Coming up after the break, I've got the inside scoop on a couple AMI-audio podcasts that are dropping today. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. North American stock markets all closed lower yesterday on widespread losses driven by rising concerns about economic growth. Toronto's TSX index lost 153 points to 18,327. New York's Dow Jones average tumbled 329 points and the Nasdaq gave back 65. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 140 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.15 cents U.S. The Dow Jones industrial average fell 1.1% yesterday, making it the last of the major American stock indexes to fall into what's known as a bear market. The Dow is now 20.5% below its all-time high set January 4th. And the J.A. Douglas McCurdy Airport in Sydney, Nova Scotia is scheduled to resume commercial flights this afternoon. Air travel is steadily returning to normal in Atlantic Canada after shutting down when post-tropical storm Fiona hit last weekend. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Our friends at AMI-audio, the mighty AMI-audio podcast network, are releasing a whole mess of new original podcasts this week. Debuting today is a brand new video podcast called 
Raising Kindness with our old friend Becky Czar. On every episode, Becky and her son Bennett perform acts of kindness ranging from volunteering at shelters, community centers, and nursing homes in southern Saskatchewan. In the first episode of Raising Kindness, you'll hear about their volunteer experience at the CNIB Kids Camp. We actually have a short clip here from that episode with Becky, Bennett, and his friend Rylan. Let's have a look and a listen. The CNIB Kids Camp, and we went to, it was at the Northwest Leisure Center, and we went swimming. We played Uno, and I actually didn't know until we were about halfway through, but the cards had in the top right and bottom left corner, hand corner, it had a little bit of braille, which showed the number and the color, I'm guessing. The kids didn't need to say it out loud because they could see enough to see what the person behind them or what the person played to play their card. Okay. I'm curious to hear what you guys thought about the experience. I mean, there were kids around your age who were blind or partially sighted. What was that like? Um, It was kind of surprising that they could like do all the things that we do as normal, like kids and stuff, like they could play basketball in the pool or play Uno with us before we went in the pool. So it was very surprising that they could do all that like normal kids. Um, And they very brutally beat Rallon and I at Uno. (laughs) You can find the Raising Kindness podcast with Becky Zarr on AMI's YouTube page or wherever you like to download your podcasts. And of course, while we're talking about kindness, that's one of the things that relates to our daily poll today, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We're asking, how do you plan on helping victims of Hurricane Fiona in Atlantic Canada? Money? clothes, supplies, or other, so you can vote on social media. You can also send us emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. I'm told that I don't give you the points of contact enough on the show, so I'm doing that now. So use them, reach out, let us know what you're thinking about and what you think. Also dropping today... On the mighty AMI-audio podcast network is the season finale of the Triple Vision podcast. This time, the Triple Vision team engages in a roundtable to reflect on some of their favorite discussions from season one. So remember, you can find your AMI podcasts, including Now with Dave Brown, in case you missed this show, on your favorite podcasting platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or my personal favorite, Spotify. And uh, make sure you like and subscribe and share and rate. Do all that stuff. Because sharing is caring. And it really helps us out when you do. Coming up next, Elizabeth Moeller will tell you about the upcoming fundraising campaign because of balance. But first, electric vehicles are making a splash in the water. Derek Dennis explains in Tech Trends. Michael Miller works for CBOB, a company that specializes in underwater EVs. CBOB is an underwater propulsion device. You hold it like sort of like a kickboard, like, you know, in a, in a swimming pool. It can go up to 14 miles per hour, and it can dive up to 130 feet. He says the device is designed to help scuba divers get around more easily. It's for leisure. I mean, you don't just have to use it because you're a scuba diver. 
You would usually want to go in the water, like what's like snorkeling. You don't need to be have certification to snorkel. The charge on a sea bob lasts a few hours, and when that charge starts to run down, Miller says they've developed a way to let the driver know it's time to head back to shore. As your battery power decreases, it decreases the speed you can go. So it's like tells you, you're like, okay, well, why is this slowing down? Well, it's slowing down. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We do not need to travel too far to catch up with our community reporter in Toronto, Ontario. It's Elizabeth Moeller just down the street, although I suppose it's a long street if you really get down to it. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. Yes, it's a long street, but worth the travel to see you. How are you this morning? <laughs> I'm pretty good. I suppose that the uh, Don Valley Parkway constitutes as that more than just a, a yeah. It's 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 a, it's a really big, fast-moving street. Who's uh, getting technical? Why worry about these specificities, Elizabeth? Let's start in the world of philanthropy and giving. You want to talk about the Because of Balance campaign, which starts on October the fifth. I have a sense of who's behind this, but you need to confirm to me the per. The organization behind this all? Yes, absolutely. So the Because of Balance campaign is a campaign that the organization Balance for Blind Adults has launched for I the knew past it. several years. Yes, surprise. So what is balance? You may be wondering. It does not have to do with shoes or physiotherapy. Balance for Blind Adults provides rehabilitation services to adults living in the city of Toronto who have vision loss. And Balance supports clients wherever they're at to get wherever they're going using listening, empathy, and a range of programs and services. So Balance has orientation and mobility, assistive technology, community engagement, as well as a a whole plethora of group programs. And that's one of the really, really unique things about Balance is their group programming. One of the things that a lot of people give feedback on about this organization and why they love it is precisely what you identified, the group programming, the sense of community that it builds. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think just thinking about the importance of, of this fundraiser, it's it's not only raising funds, but it's raising awareness. I've heard the term friend raiser being thrown around, Dave. Oh, I don't know if that's one you've heard. No, but that's good. What, I like that. What's really beautiful is uh, clients have a chance to engage with this campaign and tell their story. Now, don't worry if you're thinking, I'm not a video person. Balance can help you set up your fundraising page and do a video, and you can tell your story about what Balance has meant to you. Maybe you lost your sight and you wanted to learn how to read again, and you weren't sure how to use the technology. Or maybe you had a change in your vision and you weren't sure how you were going to continue working, and Balance was there for you. Whatever your story is, this is a great opportunity to tell your story. And we know how powerful storytelling is. It's cathartic for the person who's telling their story, but it raises awareness. Maybe your friends and family don't know exactly how you get out every day and cross the street and get down to work or get to church or wherever you're going. Maybe they they know you get there, but they don't know how. So this is a really great opportunity to to showcase some of that. It's, It's probably embedded in the answer that you just gave, but how is approaching fundraising a little bit differently, like they're doing here, so critical and so essential at maybe garnering some attention and spreading the message even further? 
Absolutely. So again, I think that friend raising piece, you know, I think being able to share, share stories and share how clients are, are doing the great things that they're doing. But I think the peer to peer piece is really important. So, you know, you as a, as a user of balanced services can build your own fundraising page. You can send it out to your network, tell your customized story. So you're actually sharing with your peers. So again, it's raising awareness. I think a really, really key piece of this is the opportunity that, that you have to make a difference. So maybe these services have meant something big to you. You've been able to find community again. You joined a group and you learned the iPhone and you want to share those pride points, those moments of excitement and success. This is an opportunity to, to not just say, hey, give me a few bucks in my pocket, but an opportunity to tell a really powerful story. I'm a huge fan of storytelling. We know within the disability community how powerful lived experience is. And this is an opportunity to really put that to the test. Yeah, no doubt about that one. So folks do want to learn more. I'll give the email address, which is info at balancefba.org. And then surprise, surprise, the website, balancefba.org as well to learn more. And I'll give you one guess where those links are going after the show. It's Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. Let me guess the blog. Ah, Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. I (laughs) nailed it. And, and Dave, I don't know how good your trivia skills are, but there might be an event on the 5th of October that you want to check out to learn more about balance. It's all kinds of balance trivia. How did the organization start? What does balance stand for? Great question. So (laughs) I don't know. Be competitive, Dave. I'm getting my, my trivia, my trivia (laughs) team together. So maybe we'll see you there. I'm pretty good at trivia. I don't know how well I would do at balance trivia. I don't. That seems like it might be a little bit outside my range. I'd have to spend some significant time on the FAQ page, the Frequently Asked Questions page of the website. But ami.ca slash now is our blog to uh, get these links to, uh, to Balance for Blind Adults and the fundraiser. Elizabeth, speaking of fun, Nuit Blanche is coming back to Toronto on October the 1st. Goodness gracious, that is Saturday. What wow. themes, I know it's crazy, what, <laughs> the, what themes are taking place this year? Any new experiences for people to enjoy? Yes, uh, so the theme this year is the space between us. And I don't mean the Coldplay song, that actually is the theme. Oh, so really, I, was thinking really... about, I was thinking about the Dave Matthews song, but I guess oh. to each their own. Yeah, to each their, well, it's, it's okay. You know, Dave Matthews shares your name, so you have to have some loyalty there. But, you know, this year, the, the theme is really bringing together art from the BIPOC community as well as different geographic regions within the city. So we're looking at downtown Toronto. We're looking at the east end of Toronto with the Scarborough Town Centre, out over Humber College, into Etobicoke, so out my way. So really the idea is 150 exhibits, and it's the idea is to showcase different types of art, Different organizations are involved. So, you know, 401 Richmond, they've been involved for a number of years. This is actually the 16th Nuit Blanche. I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. I know. And I didn't know this, but Nuit Blanche happens all over, not just in Toronto, although we're talking about the one in Toronto coming up October 1st. But when I was preparing for the show, this is actually a concept that's happened quite uh, quite, um, all over the country. Yeah, I know, I forget when they do it in Montreal precisely, but they do a lot of stuff in Montreal around adding all kinds of beyond arts programming, little events here and there. They end up running the public transit, the metro, the subway all night to make sure that people can get to these things safely after a couple of uh, Montreal-related beverages. So there's a lot that goes on. I know they do it in Halifax. They do it all over the country, which is really, really cool. I was reading about one in Saskatoon too, so I had to to make sure that I was giving uh, Toronto information. So yes, 
There's over 150 exhibits this year, 16th year, really exciting, expanding. We know that not everybody lives near the downtown core. Um, organizations involved, like I said, 401 Richmond, and within that building, lots of different galleries are going to be involved. Artscape, which would Barnes is going to be involved. Uh, Centennial College is going to be involved this year. Humber College, York oh, University. Wow. wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you can see all of the organizations that are involved. Really great types of art too. So not just visual. Sometimes we think of these things and go, oh my goodness, is there going to be anything I can participate in? But uh, the Bentway's got some really great audio stuff uh, lined up this year, as does the Drake Hotel. Lots of performances. So it's very oh, inclusive. Wow. And if you're wanting to know more about accessibility and just how to plan your your night and your event, it starts at sunset and goes all the way to sunrise. I don't know, maybe there should be a competition to see who can last all night. There's a, <laughs> there's a contact in the show notes for someone that you can uh, connect with around any accessibility-related questions. Yeah, it's going to be Rachel Fender, but as opposed to reading out the whole thing, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now for more information on that one. Elizabeth, I think my days of staying up till sunrise are probably behind me. Oh, you just got to get lots of coffee into you, and there will be cafes <laughs> open in the 401 Richmond building all night. I'll I did look that. into that. All right, so, okay. You know, right. I don't know. I, I think th- you should try. <laughs> I think the last time I stayed up till sunrise, something else was involved a little stronger than oh, caffeine, okay. but we can't talk about that on the air. <laughs> we can't talk uh, about that on the air. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth, speaking of odd sleep schedules, though, you'd be very proud of me. I woke up at 2 a.m. today because I went to bed at 6 yesterday. My, my body clock's all off because of football. And I went to the gym at 2.30 in the Excellent. morning, Elizabeth. I biked 10 kilometers today to start the day. Well, I biked 10 kilometers on a stationary bike. That's incredible. That is really good. 2 a.m. Impressive I, dedication. I, I might not be able to run a triathlon like you with my bad knees, bad feet, bad hips, bad back, bad shoulder, etc. But I can certainly do a stationary bike by myself in the middle of the night. That's incredible. Uh, That's dedication, Dave. Do, doing my best, trying to catch up to Elizabeth Moore. So Moeller. you might, you, you might, you might be able to stay up for a new blanche. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there an exercise bike that I can ride? Maybe that might yes. help. Just a little cardio Maybe in the middle of the, the night. Exhibits. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Elizabeth. Thank you for this. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Dave. Great to talk to you too. That's Elizabeth Moeller, community reporter in Toronto, Ontario, the center of the universe where we did not invent Nuit Blanche. And of course, you can find out more, like I've mentioned a couple times during the segment, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. Let's wrap up the hour with a couple of news stories. Following up on some COVID news from yesterday, I'm just going to reiterate it. All COVID-19 border restrictions will be removed as of Saturday, and that includes mandatory vaccination, testing, and quarantine of international travelers. The cabinet order maintaining the border measures will not be renewed when they expire on September the 30th. But Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos warns that pandemic restrictions could be reinstated if necessary. And we will therefore leave open all possible options uh, when it comes to protecting the safety of Canadians in the world, in a COVID-19 world, which in particular we know has been generating all sorts of surprises over the last uh, two years and a half. The government is also lifting the requirements for masks on planes and trains when it comes to domestic travel. Let's give you a general COVID-19 update. There are currently 4,577 people in hospital in Canada with COVID. 195 people have died of COVID in Canada in the last seven days and since the beginning of the pandemic. 44,992 people have died in Canada of COVID-19. Let's turn to some economic news. The head of the European Central Bank says Europe's economic outlook is darkening. Christine Lagarde says taking action is necessary. 
As things currently stand, we expect to raise interest rates further over the next several meetings to dampen demand and guard against the risk of a persistent upward shift in inflation expectations. Lagarde suggests governments target assistance programs to the most vulnerable, saying the across-the-board handouts would not help fight inflation. And while we're talking about international news, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez is expressing concern about the threat of nuclear weapons in global conflict. He says nuclear weapons offer no security, just carnage and chaos. Without eliminating nuclear weapons, there can be no peace. There can be no trust. And there can be no sustainable future. And if you want a Captain Obvious take here, Gutierrez says there are no winners in nuclear war. The idea that any country could fight and win a nuclear war is deranged. Any use of a nuclear weapon would incite a humanitarian Armageddon. Russian President Vladimir Putin has openly considered the prospect of using tactical nuclear weapons in the Ukraine war. My goodness, I mentioned to Elizabeth that your guy woke up at, uh, it was actually 1.30 in the morning today because I went to bed at 6 last night. I was going to take a nap. The napping turned into full-blown sleeping, which is fine by me. Didn't mind. I like working out at 2.33 in the morning. Nobody's around. Nobody bothers you. The whole gym's to yourself. You can take your headphones out, just blast your music. It's pretty cool. When do you like to work out? Do you work out in CEO hours? That 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. slot? That's when the real winners do it. Send us an email. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca. At Accessible Media on Twitter. Or give us a phone call while you're pumping that iron. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Give us a buzz from the elliptical and we'll play it on the air. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, September the 27th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Nelson Rago will tell you about a newly developed app to help bus drivers pick up passengers who are blind or partially sighted. And we have another edition of the weekly news quiz. Alex Smythe will be here. Andy Frank will be here. And so will Karen McGee defending the crown. Karen picked up a big win last week and I imagine wants to continue the momentum. I got the questions right here. They're like the leads in Glengarry Glen Ross. They're worth their weight in gold. Although not very heavy. Although gold is quite valuable. So even a couple light pieces of paper would still be some form of valuable gold. Let's begin the hour. Got to say that. Got to make sure I say those words because they pop up on screen. Amtrak has resumed its Cascadia rail service between Vancouver and Seattle after two years. The service is restarting with a single day round trip departing Seattle at 7.45 a.m. and leaving Vancouver at 5.45 p.m. The train makes stops along its four-hour journey in Bellingham, Mount Vernon. Oh my gosh, Mount Vernon's beautiful. Strandwood, Everett, and Edmonds. Amtrak plans to add a second daily trip when equipment and staffing allow for it. Talk about a bucket list item I want to do. I want to take that train through the Cascades. I've taken the bus and I mostly slept through it. 
I'd love to take the train from Vancouver to Seattle. They're talking about building a high-speed train between Vancouver and Portland. Then we'd really be getting somewhere. But we'll settle for Seattle for now. Over to the prairies, where Alberta Justice Minister Tyler Shandro is expressing concerns about federal gun control measures. Rob Westgate has more. Since May 2020, the federal government has prohibited more than 1,500 different models of assault-style firearms and is committed to establishing a buyback program to remove the firearms from communities. Provincial Justice Minister Tyler Shandro says he received a letter from the Federal Minister of Public Safety asking for police resources to begin confiscating firearms this fall. He wrote back telling Marco Mendoncino that Alberta will not agree to having RCMP officers act as what he called confiscation agents. Shandro says the province will also protest any such move under the provincial federal agreement that governs policing. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. And over to Ontario, where new research indicates Ontario family doctors left the profession in the early days of the pandemic at an increased rate. A study led by Unity Health Toronto says about 3% of family doctors across the province, or 385, stopped practicing between March of and September of 2020. Dr. Tara Kiran says those doctors accounted for an estimated 170,000 patients losing access to a family doctor. The pandemic has made a bad situation even worse in primary care. And so we really need to address this issue by supporting more people to go into family medicine and primary care. Dr. Kiran says the province needs to figure out a way to get more doctors into family medicine. And then over to Atlantic Canada, a number of schools in Nova Scotia remain closed today. The province says schools in Halifax, Port Hawkesbury and Truro regions are closed again due to power outages and unsafe road conditions. School in Cape Breton region will be closed for the remainder of the week due to the ongoing state of emergency following the storm. And then over to New Brunswick, where that province is attempting to streamline the process of license, licensing registered nurses from France to work in the province. The new licensing program is based on a model already existing in Quebec. Health Minister Bruce Fitch says New Brunswick's health system faces significant challenges and his team is on working on ways of improving access to health professionals. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for a sports chat. So, Alex, based on the revelation that I shared that I went to bed at 6 p.m. last night, I missed the Monday night football game. But thanks to DAZONE, while I was doing my 10-kilometer bike ride, I caught up on it this morning between the Cowboys and the Giants. The Cowboys pulling out a fourth-quarter win. Your thoughts on the game? A bit of a uh, snooze fest, especially in the first half, Dave. You know, it, it Oh, a few field goals back and forth. Uh, you didn't quite know if this was going to be another one of these games that, you know, on paper looks like it could be high scoring. It was a lot of excitement. The Giants were coming in undefeated. The Cowboys, you know, they they were one and one, but they they did some good things. And you know, the first half was like, oh no, am I am I calling it quits? Am I going to bed at halftime? Just uh, I'll I'll leave it. But things did open up in the in the second half, and I I found it very interesting because. There were a lot of calls, and I'm not sure if you felt this, that there was a lot of questions around certain penalties and and calls that were made and ones that weren't made that could have resulted in a higher score, especially for Cowboys. There was a couple that were in and around the the end zone in the red zone area that even, you know, Troy Troy Buck and and, uh, 
um, uh, Troy Aikman. Screw, Joe, Joe, Joe Buck and Joe, Troy Aikman, Joe Buck yeah. And jo- I was combining them, yeah. That's okay, that's uh, okay. Uh, um, yeah, Troy and Joe were, were commenting on it and just saying like, okay, uh, you know, that should have been called. Oh, I don't get this call. And so it's like, yeah, you know, you kind of see it as like, uh, it's questionable. Why are certain calls going one way and not the other? And And so that was kind of... You know, like any other NFL game, you're always going to come across these issues. Oh, but, yeah, the officiating uh, in the yeah. NFL, the officiating in the NFL is brutal. There's holding yeah. and pass interference on every single play. Yeah. There's illegal men blocking downfield on every play, but it only gets called every five or six plays. And all things being equal, Alex, I prefer less flags to more flags, mm-hmm. unless something is absolutely egregious. I kind of feel like you've got to let them play, but once they start throwing the flags, once they yeah. start calling calling the penalties, then I then I want and expect that to be the standard, right? So that's why I would say let them play, let them play, let them play. But once you start doing it, then you've got to call it all. Absolutely. Well, and this is the issue because, like, if you start off the game and, and you set that standard, like, this is going to be a penalty in this game, stick to it. But oftentimes that's not the case. You know, you're, you're going to get – a flag here or two here in the first quarter, but then they let it ride the rest of the rest of the game, or or they decide to start calling it in the third quarter, the fourth quarter when the game actually matters, and and so it be, it creates this uneven balance, this unfair advantage for one team or another, because you never want the refs to decide the game. You you want the the teams and the plays to decide it, but you know oftentimes especially in in the NFL where the competition and and the skill level are so similar so tight that it's a game of inches it's mm-hmm. a it, it's a, a matter of a tug here a hand here a slight movement here that uh that could result in a penalty so unfortunately that happens a lot but at the end of the day Dallas won 23-16 uh I don't know about you Dave but to me it seemed like it was a lot more offense on both sides, but it didn't really translate to the points that mm-hmm. you would expect, especially in the first half. Like between the the twenties on uh, in midfield, there was a lot of open open field for receivers for CD Lamb to get open for the running backs to run through for Daniel Jones to to run for quite a few yards. But when it came down to the red zone. It seemed both teams kind of struggled to to finish, especially in the first half. Yeah, not finishing drives. That's one of that's one yeah. of the big things that we're seeing more and more in the NFL. The teams that are settling for field goals are oftentimes regretting it. I'm still a put points on the board guy. I'm not one of the go for it on every single fourth down guys, but nonetheless, when you're moving the ball to the red zone, once you get down to that scoring area, here's the football cliche: you got to punch it in. Alex, we're three weeks into the season. Three weeks is now in the books. Let's overreact. (laughs) I am absolutely loving the prospects of the Jacksonville Jaguars. They spent a lot of money in the offseason on, let's call them questionable signings, but the point was to bring in more professional football players up and down the roster to fill in some of the gaps. And the coaching staff, Doug Peterson, is doing just a phenomenal job this year really shepherding second-year quarterback Trevor Lawrence, former first overall pick by the Jaguars, into becoming what I believe to be one of the premier quarterbacks in the league. Alex, I'm 100% on board with Jacksonville. I think they're going to be a problem. Yeah, you know, Jacksonville is that surprise team. You you you, you always kind of think, okay, Jacksonville are going to be Jacksonville. Last year, I thought, okay, you know what? They got Trevor Lawrence. They got arguably the best college quarterback in over a generation coming out 
first overall pick. Mm -hmm. This is going to be great for the franchise. This is going to be marquee. They're going to have instant success. No, they had not. They had more chaos. They had more Jacksonville uh, Jaguars football because of all the situation with Urban Meyer, with just players not wanting to play for him. It's a the the chaos, the turmoil. You bring in in this offseason Doug Peterson, a Super Bowl winning head coach who won with Carson Wentz and Nick Foles, the two yeah. quarterbacks that, yeah. you know, no one, they're not going to win any other Super Bowl. They probably never would have won any other Super Bowl unless it was for Doug Peterson's guidance and, and leadership in Philadelphia. He comes in, he has an immediate calming presence. It's, it's something I didn't quite expect. I would have figured, okay, you know what? You have to overpay for these players. As you mentioned, there's huge money being spent in the offseason questionable you know spending it was like some 70 80, million dollars 80 million dollars on christian kirk the third wide christian receiver kirk, in never, arizona yeah who never had a thousand yard receiving season which is insane to me but hey you know they're winning games they're on top of the division which is something i did not expect but it's not the only division that's really kind of raising eyebrows or causing questions concerns i want to talk about the afc west because oh. before the season started that was the division. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be at least three playoff teams in this division. But you look at it. OK, you got Kansas City who lost yesterday or, or on Sunday to Indianapolis and ended the game with Biennemi, uh, the offensive coordinator, and Patrick Mahomes arguing and shouting at each other on live TV. That wasn't good. Russell Wilson came into Denver. You expected oh, Super Bowl bound. That's ugly. He struggled. That's ugly, man. Mightily. Denver's in a bad mightily. situation right now. Yeah, and, and you just don't know really what's the situation there. And then you got the Raiders who are 0-3, the only winless team in, in the league, and they're not a bad team. They just struggled to get wins against good opponents. They got Devontae Adams, the, the prize uh, of uh, the 2021-2022 offseason with the trade from Green Bay, but it it's just shocking. And, and my dark horse, actually, for the year was the L.A. Chargers, and now they're kind of imploding a bit. Their left tackle was just announced to be gone for the season. And uh, Justin Herbert is injured with a rib injury. So you know that's going to impact him going down. Broken cartilage in his ribs. Not just a rib injury. Yeah. It's like, how about yeah. you just play with some broken cartilage on Sunday, Justin? <laughs> See how that goes. Yeah, exactly. That'll be fine. You'll you'll be able to make the throws and won't not, mind getting hit by a rushing uh, yeah, defender. Yeah, it's not like you play a contact sport or anything where, like, <laughs> dudes are going to crash into your ribs multiple times a game. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's an insane division. And then the one, uh, another one, let's talk about my NFC North uh, division. We got three two-in-one teams, and I can definitely tell you they are not all that good, starting with my team, Chicago Bears. They're not a good team. Uh, Justin Fields literally threw for 100 yards Sunday, and yet we still somehow pulled out a win in Houston, against Houston. You got Minnesota, who can be the hottest team on the field, or they can be the coldest team. Jekyll and you know, Hyde. It really yeah. depends. Yeah, exactly. It all depends on their quarterback play. It, let's look at Green Bay. Aaron Rodgers in, in there still doing his thing, but he doesn't really have the offense around him. He doesn't have the receiving targets that he used to with Devontae Adams gone. So the, there's a lot of kind of question marks about who's actually going to run away with that division. And then you got Detroit. They're one and two, but... They have one of the highest scoring offenses in the league, and they actually look good. I would put them almost at the second best team in that division, Dave. I don't know about you. Like, do, mm. how well do you see Detroit? 
I think they're covering a lot of spreads, which has been very profitable for a <laughs> Dave Brown accounting over the course of yep. the last three weeks. Uh, I would say they're the third best team. I think it's still pretty clearly uh, Green Bay, Min- Green Bay, Minnesota, Detroit, Chicago in the order in that division. But but Detroit has become one of these teams that's really exciting to watch. They've become really a, yeah. a Sunday fixture in my life, which I really enjoy. Alex, we're a little tight for time here, but I need to sure. take one minute and say the San Francisco 49ers, yes, they lost their starting quarterback to a broken ankle in week two. Regardless, they stink. The San Francisco 49ers are in so many primetime games this year. It's disgusting because they're an awful team. They've overachieved for years. They're junk. They're trash. Get the Niners out of here. Let's take their games off primetime now while we still can. And that's my closing thought on the football season thus far. Well, yeah, you know, and that's the beauty of having those flex schedules. The NFL works, especially later on in the season, to swap some of those primetime games. If the matchups, if the teams aren't doing well, they can flex some more high-profile games. I expect maybe some Miami games to potentially get flexed in. You know, they're they're doing fantastic. They're playing in primetime on Thursday night against the Bengals after half the team had heat stroke on Sunday. So that's going to go super well in Cincinnati on Thursday. Alex, thank you for this. we got to go. Sounds good. That's Alex Smythe. He was filling in for Brock Richardson, who's the host of the Neutral Zone. Just because Brock isn't here today doesn't mean you can't find the Neutral Zone Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. And a short while later, you can find the Neutral Zone in podcast form and in video podcast form on AMI's YouTube page. Let's go back to Alex, who has the National Weather Update. And now we're switching over to weather with the AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's cloudy with rain expected this afternoon and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 20. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's cloudy with rain starting this morning and up to 10 millimeters expected and 20 is the high there. In St. John, New Brunswick, It's cloudy, but becoming a mix of sun and clouds later and a high of 19. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds with showers possible and along with thunderstorms later this afternoon, and 14 is the high. In Toronto, Ontario, same thing, it's cloudy with rain expected and possible thunderstorms this afternoon, but 15 is the high. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, It's cloudy with a chance of showers and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high there is 12. In Brandon, Manitoba, there's sunshine and a high of 17. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's sunny as well with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 22. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly sunny with a high of 30, so My it's going to be a hot one there. Oof. Yeah, exactly. It's a hot one out in the prairies there. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with possible rain this morning, but it's going to be clearing up later, and the high is going to be 27, so it's also going to be a hot one there. In Whitehorse, Yukon, it's mainly sunny, but the high is more reasonable at 13. In Kelowna, BC, it's sunny, and 26 is the high. And finally, in Vancouver, B.C., it's sunny and a high of 21. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Nelson Rago tells you about a new app designed to help bus drivers pick up passengers who are blind and partially sighted. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. Nelson Rago of Cool Blind Tech is here. He's the founder of that group and joins us in steaming hot Edmonton, Alberta. Good morning, Nelson. Hot. I didn't realize it was that hot. <laughs> I think you're going yeah, good morning. To, I think you're going up to 27 degrees today, so I hope you have the pool Oh, open. awesome. Okay. <laughs> you're going to be suntanning today. Well, yeah, if you're going to play hockey tonight, the rink's going to be all slushy and melty. No outdoor hockey tonight out there in Edmonton, Alberta. Nelson, let's uh, jump over to Australia for your first story, where a programmer developed an app called See Me, which is designed to help bus drivers pick up passengers who are blind or partially sighted. So, Nelson, how does it do that? Uh, so, in conjunction with this, uh, the See Me app, um, the bus itself will have a device that will receive the communication from the app. Uh, so as the user is, is at their bus stop, uh, they'll get a list of uh, buses that are approaching and then they'll select the uh, the specific bus that they're looking for. And then that will send a signal to that bus. And as the bus is approaching uh, your stop, uh, it'll alert the bus driver to uh, uh, you know notify them that there's someone here to be picked up. And then uh, you, know, you simply get on the bus. So it's um, ho- hopefully it's that straightforward because <laughs> that's how they explained it. But uh, that's that's pretty much the gist of it. Does it go a step further? Is it possible to use the app to tell the bus driver when you also want to be dropped off rather than sort of whispering in their ear like, hey, fourth and main? Yeah, so, so that's the other cool thing about it. Um, um, you know, as you're on the bus, um, <clears throat> you know, regardless if you're in the front or the, or the back, um, Especially when you know, it's busy on the, on the bus, you don't want to like reach over and, and try to hit the button when you're, um, especially when you can't see it very well. Uh, so on the app itself, it also has a, a feature uh, where you can pre-select the, the stop that you want to get off uh, or an upcoming stop. If, if you kind of know what stop is coming up, you can just select the next stop and then you'll also notify the bus driver uh, to let him know that um, you're, you're going to be uh, uh, disembarking on the, on the next uh, stop. We mentioned this was a developer in Australia. Has there been has there been any indication of how much it costs to develop this app? Um, the, there's, they didn't specify exactly how much it's going to cost for this app, but uh, the, the uh, recipient, um, the the, uh, the software developer of this app, uh, she actually recently was awarded uh, an international Holman Prize, uh, which gives up to uh, twenty five thousand uh, dollars. Uh, funding for, towards uh, this this app, so um, I would say that's a that's a pretty good head start on, on getting this uh, app off the ground. I know there's apps out there, uh, depending on how detailed they are, it's you know it's more involved, but uh, um, it, it's a lot of money to uh, to develop an yeah. app and 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 this service. So it's well, I, I think she will be you know doing pretty well with this, especially because it sounds like there's a hardware component as well. There needs to be a hardware component on the bus as well to to go along to work in conjunction like this. Nelson, you mentioned that there's the possibility of other similar services existing. Like, is this something that municipalities have thought up the idea of saying, Hey, if we're at a, if we're at a multiple uh, bus bus stop, what can someone who can't read the bus numbers do to notify a bus driver? Hey, I need to be picked up. Uh, well, one of the reasons why the developer actually made this app is uh, she wasn't able to find anything like it um, that does exactly what the See Me app does. I mean, there's uh, uh, the audible services as the bus, uh, you know, approaches the stop. It'll give you an, an audible alert, uh, you know, with a, a voice uh, saying that this is the stop. Um, but other than that, uh, um, you know, the specific app, I'm not aware of any app that uh, that just does this task specifically. 
Um, so it's uh, hopefully they can uh, do this in Canada, U.S. or whatever. Uh, but uh, it's, this is the first time I've heard of like this specific type of app that does that. You mentioned uh, 25Gs to further the development of CME. Uh, is there are there plans to make this more widely available? Yes, she's actually in talks with uh, a number of uh, transportation departments uh, throughout Australia. Uh, so the plan is, uh, if everything comes through uh, the way uh, she's planning, um, they they will have it uh, on trial uh, in Australia um, in August of next year. By Kroiki. Definitely a nice right. development down there, uh, <laughs> down under. No doubt about that one. Save you from crocodiles and get on the bus. That's how you, that's how you make things move in Australia. Yes, Nelson, sir. I can't imagine being a blind person in Australia because there are scorpions and snakes everywhere. I'm not even worried about the crocodiles. You got to go hunt oh. down a crocodile. You got to find trouble with a crocodile. But snakes and okay. scorpions in your backyard, man, like everywhere. <laughs> Poisonous spiders in your showers. We don't get that in Toronto and Edmonton. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't mind visiting Australia. <laughs> I don't know if I'd live there, but I definitely want to visit there. All right. Well, hopefully you've got a guide there who can do proper scorpion sweeps for you in the morning. <laughs> uh, Nelson, let's uh, jump over to iPhone. You've been talking a lot about iOS 16 since it's uh, beta launched a few months ago. Well, now you want to give your tech tip in regards to using Siri to end phone calls. Yeah, cool little feature. Uh... Uh, so if you have iOS 16, uh, you need minimum um, iPhone 11 for this to work because uh, it's also uh, hardware based. Um, if you go into uh, uh, settings in uh, Siri and search, uh, there's a feature there where you can enable, uh, um, I don't want to say the, the keyword, but where you can invoke uh, the, the Siri command. And, uh, and then from there, um, you can actually uh, hang up your FaceTime call or your auto or your just regular phone call. Uh, just by saying that command and then saying uh, hang up, and then uh, it'll hang up. Of course, uh, everyone on the other line is going to hear uh, that you said that command, so <laughs> uh, they'll know that in advance. But, you know, if, if your hands are, are uh, occupied, if you're doing something, uh, putting away groceries or something like that, uh, it's a cool little feature um, uh, to have. Uh, so, uh, But uh, there there is, like, the, the false <laughs> things that uh, it does listen to, because um, I have a Hey Siri on my... Um, uh, I just said it. Sorry, <laughs> uh, I have it on my on my phone, and it sometimes, even though it's catered towards that person's voice, because you can uh, um, have it specifically to your voice. Yeah, when you do the when you uh, do it, the setup, they do a lot of customization to your voice. I yeah. remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, it's still like if I'm in the public and there's a lot of traffic, sometimes it'll it'll go off and it'll hear someone walking by, and then I'll, I'm doing some random search <laughs> uh, just by someone's voice. So it's it's not 100. percent So. Uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, this, this, even though it should work, it's you know it's technology. It's you know sometimes it's hit and miss. Yeah, absolutely. But either way, when you can say a goodbye to someone just like that, it's still not as satisfying as actually hanging up a phone, though, right? There was nothing as good as slamming down a landline. <laughs> to a certain degree, the flip phone allowed yeah. you a little bit of pleasure in flipping the phone shut, but just pressing the red button or saying, hey, hang up on this person, not as much fun. It, it doesn't deliver the point in the same way as an aggressive yeah. landline phone hang up. <laughs> yeah, that's old school. <laughs> uh but uh, maybe they'll have like an audible feature where you can enable it and it'll make that sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Program, program that in there the way that Tesla programs in some uh, different noises on the horn. Hey, Nelson, thank you for this, buddy. We appreciate it. Have a great day. Take care. That's Nelson Rago. He is the founder of Cool Blind Tech. Coming up after the break, we check in with Ramya and within in Zareen Abdelmajid. 
We're actually going to talk a little bit about public transit related to Nelson's story. And Ramya will tell you what's coming up on Kelly and Company later today. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Let's say good morning to Nazreen Abdel-Majid, intrepid AMI-audio producer. Hey, good morning, Nazreen. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, Nazreen. In the last segment, we were talking to Nelson Rego about a new app that's being developed in Australia that is designed to allow users to notify a bus driver, hey, I'm at this stop. So when you pass by, I need you to pick me up because I can't see the number on your bus. Nazreen, you are an avid public transit user from all corners of Ontario. (laughs) Tell me, (laughs) what is your biggest bus-taking pet peeve? Because mine would actually be pretty close to the issue being described there, especially when I'm at, say, a multiple bus hub trying to actually catch a specific bus and they're just zooming by and you you have to actively wave them down, except I can't see your number until you stop. Yeah. Oh my God. I have so many pet peeves. I'm so glad you asked that question. But uh, I think the biggest one I would think of is when the speaker system is just so low and I can't Mm. hear the stops, Mm. especially when I want to listen to music, but I really can't hear the stops. So it's kind of a, and, and there's so many times where I missed my stop. So many, so many encounters where I ended up in Scarborough rather than Mississauga. (laughs) Nice. And that's the opposite side of the city. I know. I got on the wrong bus, even though on the sign, I took a picture of it and it said the bus number that I was supposed to get on. But instead of like, it was, it was just the wrong way. So I misread it. That was my fault. But at the same time, I didn't hear the stops. Mm -hmm. The the speaker Mm -hmm. was so low. So um, I think that's it. And also is when like the bus drivers don't stop for you. I mean, like you're really, you're going towards the bus stop and they don't, they don't just wait for a second for you. Oh, is you're hustling across um, the street or hustling towards the I'm door. I'm like yeah, running yeah. and you see me, but you, you don't want to wait just for a second. And, you know, sometimes I get that they're, they're at a time uh, limit. Uh, but there was one encounter where it was, it was a, uh, pretty bad situation where it was raining. I was at a bus stop. I was actually waiting for five minutes for that bus and it was dripping rain, uh, pouring, pouring. And um, the bus stopped right in front of me and wouldn't open the door. And I started knocking and he did not open the door. And I was like, what's going on? He looked at me, he looked away and kept driving, driving off. So I was pissed. <laughs> I was mad at that. But um, yeah, so I think that's that's uh, some of my pet peeves. Another thing, I don't know if you've uh, you've experienced that, Dave, but when somebody asks you to get up from the accessibility seat, even though 
we do have yeah, technically in Yeah, I, I find I find the accessibility seating thing, I will 99.9% .9 of the time not use them unless I'm absolutely desperate to sit down for uh any like when I broke my toe a couple of weeks ago. It's like I need the seat right now. I'm I'm a little I'm a little messed up. Uh so I actually try not to sit in them, period. Because obviously mm -hmm. being being low vision, being legally blind is not necessarily a mobility issue for me. So I'm happy enough to stand if necessary. So no, I've, I've never actually been approached to get up from an accessibility seat. Uh, there was one time where I barely sit in them too, but when my arthritis is pretty bad, I uh, do end up just, you know, taking that seat. But I have encountered people judging me for not getting up for people because my disability is not yeah, it's, visible. It, it's an invisible disability. You're also young, yeah. right? You're like, you're exactly. evidently a young person. So they person. see a child. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been, um, yeah, one lady came up to me and she's like, no, you like, you should respect your elders and, and stand up. And I was still like a little bit younger and shy about everything. So I was just like, okay, yeah, I'll get up for you. That's no problem. But I was in so much pain that day. It's just, yeah. uh, just to keep in mind that, you know, not, all disabilities are visible. So no matter how young you are, like you'll yeah, have that. You shouldn't have to self-identify to uh, use an accessibility seat on a bus. That shouldn't be a requirement. I want to bring in Alex Smythe here for his thoughts on this. Alex, you are also someone who uses plenty of public transit, whether it be go trains to get into the city or buses, one, buses and subways once you get here. What are your public transit pet peeves? Yeah, so first off, I have to agree with everything you guys have said. I uh, experienced it as well, Nizreen, of, you know, sitting in those accessibility seats and then basically people coming up to you and be like, uh, you need to move. It's like, but I'm I'm blind too, you know? It's like I have my own uh, uh, disability um, uh, issues and concerns and, and, you know, because it's not really visible on me and, you know, I, when I, I would be taking the bus every day and looked like a youngish, like, able-bodied guy so you know people just assume I'm, I'm being a jerk and taking a seat I, I shouldn't be so uh like you Dave I tried to avoid those just a, out of a, a rural principle um just to avoid those kinds of conflicts and, and situation another pet peeve I have this goes specifically with go trains and especially when it's different stations that are not like the main hubs mm. because for me, it drives me crazy when they have all the signage outside, like the screens that show, oh, what's the schedule, what's happening? But it's so dim that you can't see it in daylight. You know, it, it's yeah. hard glare. Yeah. The The lighting is so low. I, I experienced this yesterday when I was uh, getting on to the ghost station, and it's like it has a, a shield over top of it to help block some of the sun, but you still can't see it. And I was looking at it for like three minutes, and the train was coming in in like three or four minutes, like, okay, I gotta find what track I need to go into. So I have to go inside the station to be able to uh, to identify which which track I need to go to. And yeah. luckily enough, you know, I, I, I found the screen, I found uh, the track and I got it right when the train was pulling in. But, you know, it's like, it's those extra minutes that's always like, well, you know, I if it was just brighter, I could see it outside. I wouldn't have to find, yeah. find the entrance, go inside, go in and find the other screen where it's like, it's right there. I can I can see that it's on. I just can't tell what mm -hmm. the the track is because the information is so there. Yeah, it adds it adds to the anxiety, especially if you're in a new like a new station or a new place or a new bus stop. It totally changes the game. I want to bring in Ramya on this one too quickly. Ramya, we've got you here joining us via the telephone machine. Just very quickly, what's your what's your public transit pet peeve? 
mine is when any audio doesn't work, uh, whether it be on the trains to let you know which train is going north or which one's going south, whether it be the buses um, when they pull up and the doors open and you don't know what bus is getting on, whether it be the bus stop announcement. Uh, I've become very audio reliant. It's the only way that I can relax on public transit um, without constantly worrying if I'm missed my stop, missed my intersection, whatever the case may be and, or getting on the wrong train, which I've done as well. Mm. Um, So if there's no audio anywhere, uh, it, brings a lot of anxiety to your travels. Nazreen, I want to come back to you because we were talking a little bit about self-identification and forgive me because I forget because I only see you in person like once a year. Do you carry an ID cane with you? Because I know one of the things that I was encouraged uh, by folks at the Montreal Association for the Blind, like in my teenage years, was to carry a ID cane specifically for the reason that we've identified. Someone approaching you on a bus to say, you're not disabled. Well, no, look, I've got, I've got this cane. So I started using the ID cane just a couple of months ago, just a few months ago. Uh, that's when I actually got it from CNIB, and um, that's when everything changed. Interactions with people changed. You know, people are more aware. But before that, you don't see it. They'll judge you. They'll be like, what is this child sitting here? What is this child, yeah. you know, um, being in my way? Why do you need to sit? Why is she sitting instead of me kind of thing? Um, so it did change drastically. Alex, what about you? Have you ever considered uh, an identification cane to avoid some of those hassles of someone kind of uh, jostling you on public transit? Well, so this is, uh, it's funny because, so I, I do have uh, a white cane that I, I use sparingly in, in in case of certain situations, but um I actually used my white cane at the airport the last time I went flying. It's not quite public transit, but I, I took it out because, you know, it was uh, I had uh, cataract surgery. It was still adjusting to new vision. So it's like, okay, I want to feel more confident in my surroundings. And normally when I'm out in public, I don't, I, I may bump into one person, you know, once every day or, or something like that. You know, I just, I don't see them. They don't see me. They're not paying attention. We, we bump into each other. It's fine. When I was at the airport and I used my white cane, Literally getting from check-in to security, I got bumped into like five times. And I was walking in a straight line. It's people just like, whether it was a target or they were just so blissfully unaware. It's the airport. That I it's got Pearson. It's just Pearson. I, I, I know. I know. But it's just like, it, it boggled my mind. It's like, normally, you know, I would think, well, people would avoid me and walk around me and say, I have the right of way because I have the white king. No didn't no, seem to P- matter. Pearson is the Hunger Games. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> uh, Nizreen, we say goodbye to you. Have a great day. You too. Alex, don't go anywhere because you're coming up in the news quiz in just a second. Ramya, I heard you moving the phone. You're not off the hook just yet. You have to tell me what's coming up on (laughs) Kelly and Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time. All right. I wasn't going anywhere. I was just readjusting. (laughs) So here we go. We're talking with our nutritionist, Julia Karanchis, and she's covering gut health today. The specific question is the difference between um, prebiotics and probiotics. So we talk about probiotics a lot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she's going to tell us what the difference is, why they help each other out, and why we need to consider everything when it comes to gut health. And then we're talking about the national... um, Center for Truth and Reconciliation. They and the Royal Canadian Mint have unveiled a deeply symbolic keepsake. We're going to learn more about that keepsake, and we're going to learn more about that and the collaboration uh, and sentiment behind it. Plus, we have our book club today, Dave. It's the last Tuesday of the month, and we're reviewing the uh, book called Restigouche, the 
Long Run of the Wild River. This is by Philip Lee, and uh, we're talking about it with Greg David, who recommended the book. Oh, Ramias and Greg always have good reading material and uh, your fingertips and your drums, so looking forward to that one at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Ramia, have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Sounds good, Dave. That's Ramia Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. What comes your way next... It's Andy Frank, it's Karen McGee, it's Alex Smythe, and it's Quizmaster Dave Brown engaging in the weekly news quiz. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Tuesday. It's the last segment of the show. You know what that means. It's time for the weekly news quiz. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for the weekly news quiz. Let's first welcome in our contestants to the show from Studio One of the mighty headquarters of AMI-tv, casting a shadow across one of the finest strip malls in North York, Ontario. It's the manager of AMI-audio, Andy Frank. From Studio One. From Studio One to your eyes I'm and number one. Number one. And we also bring in from the coyote capital of Southern Ontario, it's Alex Smythe. Yeah, I'm going to come out swinging and attacking just like the coyotes we've had. Come out biting just like those coyotes. And from the shores of the St. Lawrence River in Morrisburg, Ontario, where you can see boats, 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 but not Bodie McBoatface, it's Karen McGee. (laughs) You had to bring up Bodie McBoatface. I always do. When I need a laugh at a Karen McGee, I just bring up a little bit of Bodie McBoatface. All right, guys, you know the rules, but maybe someone out there in listener land or the viewer vortex does not know them. We have three rounds of questions, three questions per round. Each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing the options, you get two points. If you need to hear the options and get it right, you get one point. If you get it wrong, we move on until the point is awarded. The order of contestants and the questions were written down by our producer, Paul Daniel. So the order will be Andy, Karen, and Alex. So Andy, first question going to you. Queen Elizabeth II was laid to rest last week following a state funeral at Westminster Abbey. Who was the last person to receive a state funeral in Great Britain? Wow, that's a good question. It's a good question by Paul. I'm going to go with Princess Diana. That is incorrect. Incorrect. And according to the order, Karen, you get a crack at this. Do you want the options or do you want to take a swing I'm going to take a crack at it. I believe it was Winston Churchill. That is correct. Two points for Karen. I need to mark this down. Hold on a second. Normally I prepare this. Please make sure there's three. I'm just kidding. And then there's Andy, and then there's Alex. So that's one point, two points for Karen. Boom. I'm doing math in real time. Give me a break. Okay. So according to her spokesman, Lord Bell, 
Margaret Thatcher specifically did not want a state funeral, and nor did her family. Austerity, you know. She particularly did not wish to lie in state as she thought it was not appropriate. As I get ink all over myself, we now ask question number two to Karen, an opportunity to take a commanding lead. Last week, Université de Montréal computer scientist Gilles Brassard was announced to be the recipient of the Breakthrough Prize, the world's largest science prize. In what specific science did Professor Brassard win the prize? I'm going to take the choices, please. So you have three choices. There's astronomy, physics, or mathematics. I was leaning towards mathematics. I think I'm going to go with mathematics. That is incorrect. Oh. Alex, was it astronomy or physics? Oh, go with physics? That is correct. Professor Brassard was named the co-winner of the $3 million U.S. award. Holy smoke, science pays. Together with his longtime collaborator, Charles Bennett, a researcher with IBM in the United States. So here's Alex's chance to take a lead. Last week, it was announced Massachusetts was seeking a federal human trafficking probe targeting which governor who sent two plane loads of migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, that would be Governor Ron DeSantis. That is correct. Two points for Alex. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis chartered two planes at a cost of more than $600,000 in Florida taxpayer dollars to transport 48 migrants from Texas to the island. Heading into round two, Alex has three, Karen has two, and Andy has a goose egg. And Karen gets the first question of round number two. Canada's Felix Ojealiasim added a singles victory over his opponent Sunday to help Team World to victory over Team Europe in the Laver Cup. Who was the opponent? Oh, no. I'll take the choices. Was it Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, or Cameron Nori? I'll go with B. That is correct. It was Novak Djokovic. Oje Aliasim, 22-year-old from Montreal, beat the 21-time Grand Slam champion 6-3-7-6 with the help of 13 aces and a 39-11 to advantage in total winners. Heading over to Alex. Alex, a recent report from the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs concluded that Mars has more than 15,000 pounds of this substance. What is it? I'll need the options for that. Is it human trash, silver, or lead anatomy alloy from bullets? I'm going to say human trash. That is correct. That is correct. Debris on Mars comes from three main sources, discarded hardware, inactive spacecraft, and crashed spacecraft. Today, the main concern scientists have about trash on Mars is the risk it poses to current and future missions. See, we can pollute other planets that aren't even ours. Humans. Lead from bullets. Yeah, that, that seemed like a little <laughs> bit too specific. I didn't know we were talking what about... What kind the... of gunfights are there on Mars? I mean... somebody's, been watch... somebody's been watching For All Mankind. <laughs> I think so. Highly recommend. Uh, okay. I rec- little is that is that a TV show, Karen? Is that a Apple TV? It's fantastic. Okay. See, this is the question we have to ask ourselves in the modern world. Where can I actually watch that? Yeah. Apple TV. Apple TV Plus. You can also watch baseball games once a week on Apple TV Plus. Uh, let's jump over to question number three of round number two. Heading to Andy, trying to get off the snide with this one. Giorgio Maloney became Italy's first female prime minister in elections held over the weekend. Maloney is a leader of a far-right political party that many have claimed is a direct descendant of Mussolini. 
What is the name of the party? Um, it has the word brothers in it, but because I don't know the full name, I'm going to have to opt for the choices. So is it A, Italian social movements, B, brothers of Italy, which I think you may have given away your guess on that one, or fathers of constitution? The correct answer is B. That is correct. I almost contemplated giving that to you, Andy, but Paul would have yelled at me after the show, so I didn't want to have that. We couldn't be having that. The first exit polls had the right-wing coalition taking 42% of the vote, giving them a majority in both the House of Parliament, the Senate, and the Chamber of Deputies, but falling short of a supermajority. Good to know Italians also have a very complex method of politics, much like our friends oh to my. the south. Let's jump into round number three. Alex has a four, has a one-point lead. He has four, Karen has three, Andy has one, so it's still anybody's game. So we begin round number three with Alex Health Authorities in Uganda last week declared an outbreak of which disease after a man showed symptoms of a rare Sudan strain and later died? Uh, I'll take the options, please. Was it rabies, mumps, or Ebola? Uh, I'll go with Ebola. That is correct. One point for Alex. There have been several previous outbreaks of Sudan Ebola virus, four in Uganda and three in Sudan. Uganda has last declared an outbreak of Sudan Ebola virus in 2012. Andy, question number two of this round goes to you. Which WNBA team won its first title franchise, its first title in franchise history last week, defeating the Connecticut Sun in four games? It's got to be the Las Vegas Stars. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you the two points. It's the Las Vegas Aces, but because I uh, was a bit finicky about the Brothers of Italy, I'm gonna give you Las Vegas Aces. Thank and, you. Uh, photos from that parade and video of that parade. There was a lot of champagne being sprayed, and I was very jealous because <laughs> I love me a good champagne spring. The Aces won 78-71 in a road victory over Connecticut. Also, Becky Hammond, longtime NBA assistant coach, first year WNBA coach, won. Her first title in her first year. Way to go, Becky Hammond. Has interviewed for a number of NBA jobs over the years to be a head coach. I think this may bolster her resume just a little bit more. Question number three of the third round. Wow, are we already there? We're already there with question three of the third round. With uh, Alex having a two-point lead over Alex and Karen. Excuse me, Andy and Karen. So five points for Alex, three for Andy, three for Karen. So Karen, you could tie things up right here. By answering this question correctly. And if you've listened carefully to Now with Dave Brown, you'll know the answer. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration sent out an advisory notice saying this medical substance is not a safe nor appetizing marinade for chicken. I know this story. Big on the TikTok, Karen. Say it again. NyQuil. That is two points for Karen McGee because we live in non-Darwin times. The FDA had to issue a warning in response to a TikTok video challenge that showed someone cooking chicken using the cough and cold medication. Oh, People, honestly, I would say ingesting NyQuil, probably not as bad an idea as ingesting Tide Pods. So, you know, it's been Ugh. five years since that thing. What would that so chicken taste like? That is so disgusting. It would taste like a good night's sleep. <laughs> but it, but it's worse floor. when you cook it. That's the that's the problem. It's not. It's the cooking and the fumes and everything. So you're you're getting high on the fumes while you're cooking it. Then you got to eat the horrible Nyquil tasting chicken that looks like purplish green afterwards. 
I, I, Alex, I take your points. I've not watched this video to its completion. Alex, I feel like done a little more research into this than you're willing to admit. Hey, you know what? I, I, I like to keep abreast of what's happening. Oh, well done. Well done. You'd you'd think he's pulling our leg or just winging it with those kinds of jokes. Oh, (laughs) Alex, I believe this may be your first ever tie breaking scenario on now with Dave Brown. So the way the tie breaking works is I'm going to read the question when I'm done reading the question. I'll say I'll say done. And then whoever yells out their name first with the answer gets the first crack at it. Understood? Yeah. All right. Which show, the longest running in Broadway history, is set to close in February 2023? Done. Karen McGee. Karen McGee. Phantom of the Opera. That is correct. 13,935 shows by the time it closes. That is incredible. Well done karen i saw phantom of the opera at place des Arts in montreal with my grandmother lovely lovely Aww. day i used to really like musicals and now i'm too fat to fit in the chairs so i can't go anymore <laughs> i'm too fat for high culture and with that the winner of this week's news quiz is two in a row karen mcgee we chase mark phoenix out of the company and karen mcgee begins to dominate it was my diabolical plan <laughs> it was all your along. diabolical plan all along. Uh, we should check in on Mark. He lives on the coast of Newfoundland. Uh, with that, we wrap up the show. Alex, thank you for an excellent effort in filling a bunch of hats for us today. We appreciate it. No, thank you for having me, and bravo, Karen. It was uh, a you. well-fought victory. And Andy, thank you. And thank Andy, you we thank you for stepping in today for us and filling in down the hall in Studio One. Shall we continue to cast a shadow over the strip mall? I'm always happy to be a doormat on this quiz. <laughs> and Karen McGee, congratulations getting back into form with a winning streak way. You can celebrate for the next two days, and your reward will be talking to us on Thursday in the regional report. Hardly wait. I know. Hardly wait. You can barely contain yourself. That's Karen McGee, Alex Smythe, and Andy Frank. That was the weekly news quiz. That was the Tuesday edition of Now with Dave Brown. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm DB reminding you to... Play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.